Welcome to another edition litigation psychology podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Bill Kanaski, guzzling, guzzling water like, like I'm going to the electric chair tomorrow. We have two great guests, couple updates. First, do I look terrible? Yes, I do. Do I sound terrible? Absolutely. Just got back from four days. Daytona Beach Rockville Music Festival. Metallica was the headliner. My ears hurt. My feet hurt. I think I logged about 35 miles of walking. I just don't think that the human body is designed for four days of 12 hours a day of music. It's just, it's not healthy. Not healthy. Your liver's not built for that. I could tell you right now, liver, kidneys, the whole thing. But definitely, I'm, I'm getting, I'm just getting too old for this. I'm happy to have two really, really good guys on as guests today. John Adams, Chris Patton, who, who authored a paper that um, most papers attorneys write, with all due respect, I, I, str I struggle with them because I think they leave out some of the most important things, which is the psychology behind this, particularly with jury decision making with things like storytelling and you guys just rocked it. Speaking of Rockville, you guys rocked it with this paper. Uh, Chris Patton, uh, tell us a little bit about your practice and about your firm before we hop into this paper, and then we'll move on to John. Sure, uh, happy to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm jealous you got to spend some time listening to some good music. Oh yeah. Um, I am a commercial trial lawyer at Lynn Pinker, Hurst and Schwegman here in Dallas, Texas. I've been here for about 10 years. Uh, before moving to Texas, I practiced at a big firm in New York doing kind of massive commercial lawsuits. Um, at, at now, my main practice is, is like I said, commercial litigation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do a lot of antitrust, a lot of trade secrets, a lot of commercial disputes. And one of the benefits of being at a smaller boutique like Lynn Pinker is that you have the opportunity to try cases. I just got back a couple of weeks ago from a trial in the Eastern District of Texas of, of, a, of a very large antitrust case, which was a lot of fun. That's outstanding. You're liking that, uh, that Texas uh, tax system versus New York, right? That's for sure. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Really yeah. Makes, makes, makes your uh, Christmas spending a little different. John Adams, tell us about tell us about your practice and your firm. Yeah, so I, I'm a trial lawyer at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher in the Dallas office. I actually work just across the street from Chris Patton. We were colleagues for several years. Uh, learned a lot from working with Chris. Uh, I'm also in the commercial litigation space, so uh, we focus on really large, complex disputes. Uh, everything from intellectual property and you know patent type work to kind of simpler breach of contract cases, you know things that I think are really difficult subject matter for anybody to spend time with and get their heads around, but then particularly to try and distill that down uh, for a jury to understand that just becomes you know such an important part of the job. Yeah, we do a lot of mock trials on IP cases. Speak as bad as my brain hurts right now. I think the only thing that hurts my brain worse is is, is IP litigation. <laughs> it's so difficult. The jurors struggle. I will say this though, and and I think this is probably your experience as well. Commercial litigation has just as much emotion around it as a, a trucking case, as a medical malpractice case, 
Chris, I mean, when companies are going at it, I mean, emotions are up there, right? I mean, especially if they're going after each other's trade secrets. I mean, some unhappy witnesses I've seen. Oh, for sure. One of the things that has surprised me about, you know, commercial litigation is that uh, so much of it depends on on the mood, the personality of the witness. And and no matter, you know, I've done cases for massive Fortune 100 companies or smaller, you know, type uh, startups. And in each case, somebody feels emotionally vested to a degree sometimes that it gets in the way. And so I, I'm, I'm always surprised at how much depends on personality and emotion in the trial sphere. Yeah, John, tell me about your and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going off script a little bit, but we've been talking so much about this lately. <clears throat> um, the role, the, the the corporate representative and how how important that is. And, and if you have if you have the wrong per, I, I found out that sometimes the person most knowledgeable is not necessarily the best, the best, the best witness. Um, talk about the importance on, on your matters of of getting that thirty b six corporate rep really ready, particularly for deposition, because that that's going to ultimately sometimes determine your fate, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, and it's so there's a few a lot like kind of packed into that question, right? Yeah. Because you can have some really good tactical, strategic. Um, plans about, you know, when you want to take this 30B6 deposition, how early in the case to kind of frame those issues or later when it's more developed. So some important questions there, but certainly, you know, once you are tasked with putting this witness on and defending that deposition, uh, that's critical to, you know, have gone out, done the research and then prepared that witness. And I think you did a great uh, piece on this bill or there's an article about you know, witness attention spans, right? Yeah. Both when they're testifying and then preparing them. And so yeah. to realize, you know, you're going to have six, seven hours cram packed of the most vital um, you know, parts of your case this witness is testifying about. So then to back in, how much time is it going to take to, to build up that witness's knowledge on that? And it's, it's so common. You leave this stuff to the last minute or just like one day of preparation. Yeah. You can't expect somebody to, uh, to absorb all of that. So it's that's a huge issue in, in commercial cases for sure. Yeah, it's something I've been preaching for a long time to the point where I had to write a paper about it. Um, but yeah, uh, fatigue based mistakes with any with any witness uh, is really, really common. And I find that, you know, if you don't understand how the brain works, when it fatigues, how it fatigues, when you need a break, how long that break should be. Boy, there's a lot of uh, errors that can be avoided if you if you play the cards, you know, play your cards the right way. Well, thank you so much for both of you guys for coming on the show. You know what, know what I really love is that young attorneys love this podcast. I get contacted every week by young attorneys. So spread the word young attorneys, but I think it's important because, you know, the one thing that's probably uh, I think badly missing um, is the amount of training opportunities um, out, out there. And I think the more that we talk about these things and the more that we can help each other out, you know, spread the good word, particularly when something works. But you guys did this with, with, with your paper in the, uh, let's see, ABA Behavioral Economics. Uh, that article is really fantastic. And I'm going to pull up right now so I can read the title of it. Give the jury what it wants. Jury decision making and uh, decision making and trial practice. Now, of course, this caught my eye because I've pretty much published about 19 papers uh, around around this topic. And you guys really hit the science hard here. I was really, really impressed. So 
Chris, like what, what was the spark here? What, what, uh, what made, what made you guys get together and say, you know, we really need to cover this topic and we'll go through these topics, but the idea had to come from someplace, right? Yeah, I think, um, I think John was the originator of the idea, but, but what grabbed me about it was I have always been interested in some of the more kind of pop based behavioral economics, the, you know, Michael Lewis, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, the, you know, the Freakonomics type type stuff. And I'd always listen to those types of podcasts. And, you know, that was kind of my, my way to chill during my commute and, and seeing this uh, applied to what I do every day, just all of a sudden hit the nail on the head and, and, and had me thinking, oh yeah, this, this works here too. And, and John and I talked about it and, and realized like, this is, this is, this is important stuff that lawyers are missing when trying cases. Yeah, John, I, I tell you what, I was reading the paper and the thing, the thing I really like um, about the paper is the focus on what I think is one of the most important things that gets zero attention is the art and science of storytelling. And I've, you know, a few people really understand, you know, how, how this works. And um, it's so important uh, at trial. And I think when you go and you look at, say, you look at the plaintiff's bar, right? And the types of training that they get, a lot of it is in this area. And they get their, their best attorneys and they're training younger attorneys on the proper storytelling model. John, correct me if I'm wrong, because I've written about this. I've spoken about it a lot. Uh, oftentimes, the best story does not come in chronological order, does it? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, and that's that's such a huge mistake in my mind because you're you're right. You know, storytelling is is synonymous almost with um, trial lawyers, right? Or, or going to trial, you got to tell a story. That is, you know, something that everyone knows in that basic phrase. But you know, one of the things Chris made a great point about, and particularly brought this out in the article, right? Is what's interesting is how much these um you know old dogmas right or these traditions really do line up with science but they're not fleshed out well and so people have this idea i've got to tell a story and so they just put together a timeline or a chronology and say boom 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 here's what happened but that's not what telling a story really means and so you know you said this earlier bill about you know the, the emotion in commercial cases and yeah there's there's some witnesses that can be hostile or have their own emotions but i think what's equally important is you know, bringing that out intentionally and finding the emotion in a commercial case, the right emotion, right? The right themes, the right ideas, whether it's betrayal or theft, you know, things that people can relate to that a jury can understand that makes it something that's not just a dry um, dispute between, you know, ABC Corp and, and Widget Company. And so, you know, finding those stories and the characters really, I mean, to me, that's, yeah. that's what the essence of the story is and, you know, what's going to help you know, make the decision much more than the order anything happened in is who are the characters and who do people really care about and want to win at the end of the day. And just to add on that, I apologize for jumping in here, but if you look at great literature or great movies, movies, plays, none of, yep. them, none of them are chronological beginning nope. to end. No, not at all. I'm a big Scorsese fan. Right. And I, when I was given, because I, back when we were in trials, right? <laughs> now I guess it's, we're, we're getting back into it. So I have to go back and start giving this speech again is I'd give this speech and I'd start off the speech 
And I'd say, okay, raise your hand if you've heard of the movie Goodfellas. And everybody raise their hand. Is it raise your hand if you heard of the movie, you know, Gangs in New York? Everybody raise their hand. Raise your hand if you heard of the movie Casino, right? And I go, how does each movie start? And, I, and then no one, everybody just kind of looks at me. I go, better question, where does each movie start? And it starts at the end. Scorsese gets the best stuff. He puts it right in the opening scene, but he doesn't conclude it, right? <laughs> he makes he, he he gets those wheels turning. And some of the, yeah, some of the best stories, um, you know, you got to start with a, you know, Scorsese likes to do it with explosions and, and gang murders and stuff like that, gangster stuff. But it's really important, I think, to come out of the corner swinging, right? And I think that there's this myth that oh, nothing makes me crazier when an attorney, it, it, whether it be mock, preferably mock trial, not real trial, but when an attorney comes out of the corner and like you're thanking the jury for their service, you're reminding them this, their civil, this is their you know, civil duty and blah, 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 blah. And you, you burn through the most valuable five minutes you have like getting warmed up. And I think the myth is that if I come out of the jury, if I come out of the corner swinging, that the jury's somehow going to be offended or not be happy with me. Or, I mean, John, what do you think? Because I mean, I, I tell attorneys, I'm like, do your introduction in voir dire, right? They know who you are by the time you get up there. But that first, I, I have labeled this the cognitive lens. And what that means is, Whatever you say in that first five minutes, it's the lens in which jurors are going to see the rest of your case. And if you screw up that lens, it screws up the rest of your story. John, talk to us about how important it is coming out of your corner to, to really come out swinging and not save your best stuff till the end because the jury's not going to care by the end. For sure. So not only it, it shapes everything, you've got this lens, but what I actually think is really interesting too, is there's this other science and this ties directly into storytelling about uh, the chemicals in your brain and how storytelling triggers those. And right, if you come out of the gates and you can trigger a dopamine response, right? If you can, you know, show something exciting, let's get to the core of, you know, the action here and you trigger that dopamine in people, people's attention is going to increase, yeah. right? People are going to be paying more attention to what you have to say next. So don't wait until later when people are dozing off already to get to the meat of your case. When, if you can get people's attention, I mean, that's again, great stories, any great movie, let's lead with the hook. Let's get people's attention. And then we can introduce the characters and, you know, get into you know, maybe some more substance, but leading out of the gate really does frame the whole story, frame your trial narrative. And you've got to get people. It's it also, I think it, it shapes the jury's perspective of you as an attorney, right? Are you coming out and you really have something to say to me right now? Cause they just attacked you, right? Yep. A lot of times <laughs> the other side's right against you. Yep. So do you have something to come back and, and you know, punch back or, are you going to kind of meander and, and be weak? They want to see that you really have something uh, to say in response. Yeah. When uh, So now everybody's going back to trial. So I'm getting a lot of um, emails with, you know, Word documents saying, hey, you know, can you check out my opening? And I think nine out of 10 of them, the first thing I do is I delete the first two paragraphs. And I take something from the back and I move it up front. I'm like, why, why are you waiting for this? And again, there's this like this fear 
this fear of coming out, you know, you know, swinging, you know, the other thing that I've seen, and this is more, let's, let's pick on the older attorneys. Let's just go ahead and do that. Right. Let's pick on these guys. Cause really the guys have been doing this 30, sometimes 40 years. There's this old way of doing it. And it was a different jury. And I think at that point you could get away with it because there was no social media. There was no internet where you can, you come out of your corner and you're trying to warm up to the jury and you, you tell this story, right? you tell a story about, you know, my grandfather used to tell me, and, and the, but if you do that today, I mean, Chris, you're, I mean, in Twitter universe and Facebookville, I mean, you, you're not going to survive from an attention span standpoint with Gen Y and Gen X saturating the jury. They're, they're not, they don't want to listen about your, what your, your grandfather taught you do that. Right. They want to know the yeah. answer now. They want to know how are you going to address that big, nasty problem the other side just pointed out. The first thing you say, uh-huh. I think my opinion is that a lot of this is driven by lawyers who are not comfortable standing in front of juries and who don't have that that level of experience. So they need to warm themselves up. Yes. It's a, dis- a disservice to the clients. Yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of a symptom of the, the the system we have here, where where a lot of lawyers, even very senior lawyers, yep. aren't getting those reps in court that enable them to feel comfortable and come out swinging. Yeah, and that's a really really good point. It's a it's a it's a self warm up that um, I see a lot of it in public. You know, I do a lot of speeches. God, I think I'm probably approaching the hundred one hundred speeches this year. <laughs> Um, that's how much I've been speaking and I get to see other speakers speak and a lot of it's really bad <laughs> because of this this warm-up it, it gets boring you know I come out you know bull in China shop you know me <clears throat> which is so important let's talk about something that you brought up in the paper which I've written about I've spoken about which I think is so critical it's a critical tool that oftentimes gets um um, misused, or you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot. And that's really the whole concept of availability, uh, otherwise known as the availability bias. And where I've seen a lot of problems is the, um, is an attorney not understanding how that can really work for you, unless (laughs) you put the wrong party out there (laughs) to be so available. And so uh, the other thing I I, I tell my clients is I'm like, you're coming out of the corner swinging. I'm like, you should not mention your client in the first 10 minutes because you're available. Right. John, talk a little about, about the importance of availability and how if you come out talking about yourself, that could actually be a very bad thing. Right. It can't. I mean, so, and I think this ties to, you know, the other idea, one of the biases of wanting to ascribe conduct to somebody, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's a, some things, and this may not happen a lot in lawsuits, but there's a lot of times in life that things happen because of circumstances beyond somebody's control, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But a jury in particular and people in everyday life are going to want to say that somebody did something. Right. They're looking for the actor that caused the accident that, you know, lied to somebody that took the money. And when you're having this conversation in a courtroom or talking to a jury, they're not thinking there was some outside factor. And so the more that you're talking about one person in particular or playing up one person's role, to your point, I mean, when the jury's thinking about this later and deliberating, that's going to increase the availability 
they're going to um, you know, think about that person more and want to attribute causation to whoever that person is. And so, you know, certainly you don't want to play people up in the wrong light. Um, but, you know, I think the availability heuristic crosses a, a lot of parts of the trial as well, um, just because, you know, people make fundamental um, mistakes about information just because uh, what is being presented to them more. Yeah. I mean, Chris, I, I, the other thing I see constantly, and again, it's, it's the attorney brain playing tricks on itself because you want to do the right thing, but then you as an attorney, there's an emotional factor is you want to come out of the corner defending versus attacking. And what, what, what I cannot stand seeing is particularly a defense attorney come out going with, yeah, we didn't do it. <laughs> it's not our fault opening statement that, that's not the best way to come out that and that's not swinging that's that's backpedaling right it's the nuh-uh defense yeah <laughs> it's yeah. weak I've, I mean, I've seen that backfire quite a bit yeah it, it, it it's weak and so you know the nice thing um is that you know post are, are we post pandemic i don't know where we're at at this point it, i guess it depends on what state you're in in Florida and Texas, we are. <clears throat> New York, not so much. But um, we're doing a ton of mock trials and focus groups now that, you know, things are, are getting back going. And, and this really, um, it's a great way to test some of these approaches to see, you know, what's going to work, uh, what's, what's, what's not going to work. Can you, you know, how far can you push it on your attack and see, and see what the jurors, uh, you know, see what the jurors say. Uh, see what type of feedback you, you you get, and so I'm not I'm not a big fan of clients going into trial, <clears throat> um, essentially guessing on how on how to try the case, and particularly the stuff that you guys do. There's some pretty complex uh, topics that I mean, if you don't practice on how to teach that type of thing, talk about you know losing a jury. I mean, John. I, that's got to be your number one fear is that I'm going to lose this jury. <laughs> they're going to, they're not going to understand this. How do you, how do you take something, uh, particularly in commercial IP copyright, take something so complex and not lose that group? Cause that, I think that's the biggest challenge part you guys face. It totally is. And I, I frankly kind of approach it from the opposite perspective, which is I'm going to lose the jury. Right. You have to go in knowing that if you want to tell every detail of this and get into the weeds of this, you're going to lose the jury, at least at times. And so what are the things that we can do to make sure that we minimize that at least and focus on credibility, right? Focus on, okay, we're going to have to take a really complex issue. We're going to have to at least build the record, right? There's facts that are going to have to be introduced and you're going to have to prove if it's for the court, if not for the jury. But while you're doing that, what's the jury seeing, right? Are they seeing a witness who is believable, who is confident in what they're talking about, or is the jury not even paying attention at that point? And so I, I think that, you know, really thinking about kind of that, I'll almost call it like that meta view of the trial. You've got all the facts that are happening in here that have to be brought out at trial that are important, but that's not a big part of what the jury's seeing. And so thinking then again, all right, what's the jury focused on? What's the jury seeing? What is, you know, the story that the jury is going to walk away from this um, as that's all playing out at the same time? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and I want Chris to follow up on that because what I what I see the big challenge here being, which is really, really hard, I, I think the side that wins the simplicity battle has a monumental advantage. I mean, uh, am I off here? <laughs> no, absolutely true. I, I'm always surprised at how my mindset switches when I get in trial prep mode from litigating the case mode and yeah. how you get focused on so many things in discovery and litigating the case that ultimately don't matter once you get to trial. And you really have to force yourself into this view of, I'm trying to explain this to a layperson on a jury. And what matters to them may not be what matters to me. And one thing that I do, having just done this for the first time live in person since the pandemic began, um, I, I, I was reminded as to how hard it is. I did it in an antitrust case uh, that you know, it was a pretty sprawling 10-year um, type uh, allegations. And so I, I, I focused really hard on figuring out how to best explain those complex allegations um, to a layperson, in part by talking to my, my family members. So, so I, I had a moment in the weeks before trial when I um, was trying to explain something to my, uh, my, my in-laws, just kind of about the case. <laughs> good good luck with that. Good luck with that. Right. Jeez. Uh, and, and I got about halfway through and, and their eyes glazed over and I could tell they weren't following me. And I said, you know what? Um, uh, I'm not doing this right. And so I practiced again with, with my parents, my 14 year old son, who I mentioned earlier, I sometimes try and explain things to him and see what he gets from it. Yeah. And, and if the more you can practice explaining something to the folks that are around you every day that aren't lawyers, I think the better and the more equipped you are at trial to be able to explain that to a juror. John, this is a, this is a, this question just popped up on my mind. I know the answer. I just want to hear you say it and explain it, because a lot of people don't think this is true. It's absolutely true. You know, you see, okay, let's other areas of the you know product liability, <clears throat> medical malpractice, trucking. You're dealing with catastrophic injuries and death, and a ton of sympathy. But John, correct me if I'm wrong. You can use sympathy in, in business litigation. I mean, commercial litigation, You there can be sympathy. It's just how do you tap into it? How do you define it for the, the jury? Because there doesn't need to be catastrophic death and injury, you know, physically. It, that can be done, you know, from a trust basis, from a, a financial economic basis, right? You have to, right? Yeah. And if you're missing that, I think you're not doing your job correctly. Because this ties back into you know, the storytelling idea, right? And what are those themes, yeah. ideas that do evoke those emotions that juries can relate to? A jury's not going to relate to, oh, well, there's $100 million that was unaccounted for and somebody didn't have in the right ledger of the right column. That's, that's not a relatable idea. But if you talk to somebody about theft, right, or like you said, betrayal. And the confidence that you place in somebody and um you know what does that really mean the jobs that are on the line to somebody or uh these these bigger ideas the bigger concepts that do evoke emotion and, and therefore sympathy and that can cause a jury to want to root for one of these players that's that's critical in business litigation just like in any other trial yeah Chris, what do you think? fair versus unfair big versus little yeah um cheating to get ahead that those types of themes are ever present in business litigation. How do you, Chris, how do you, cause you know, a lot, there's, there's a, um, you know, I'm not sure this is a myth. I think, I think we've pretty much proven it, 
Um, jurors aren't big fans of large corporations. I don't think they have been for some time. Um, and I think, you know, as we move forward here, uh, some companies are doing uh, things a little differently than others. How do you how, how do you define your client? Because you have to humanize your client. Uh, they can't be, if it's always just, particularly if you are the big guy in the case, right? Um, a lot of jurors, I think, struggle to really understand you know, who a company really is. I think that's where a lot of these key witnesses come in to, to, you know, to humanize the company. But can you, can you talk about how you, fo you focus on that? Because if it's just all about revenue and profit, um, there's not going to be any sympathy, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Right, right. And so it, it totally depends, obviously, on what side you're on, who your client is. I tried a case for GE um, four or five years ago. And, you know, one of the things you could tap into with a company like that uh, on the defense side is their history and, and what they've done for the country and what they've built and, and, and just what they've contributed to our society. And I think that type of thing is helpful. I don't... Uh, want to overstate that though. I think the more yeah. important thing is what we talked about earlier, which is humanizing the corporation through your witnesses. Mm -hmm. And so when you're choosing your witnesses at trial, you need to find those witnesses who are going to come across as genuine, authentic to, to the jury and not the types of witnesses who kind of play into the stereotypes of big corporations. And, and that's sometimes a hard challenge to, to marry those types of witnesses with witnesses who may have knowledge. And so, and so you have to spend a lot of time thinking about who's going to sit there at the table with you and who's going to testify about the main things in your defense. Yeah. Um, John, and then we're going to transition here into jury selection. Then we'll, we'll wrap up this uh, podcast. How, what is your philosophy on dealing with shitty facts? <laughs> Every case has them. I'm a big proponent of control. I think you hit them head on. I think the more you try to run away from them or explain them away, um, I think I, I think you you draw more negative attention to it. When you have bad facts, how 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 do you tend to handle those at trial, and when do you tend to handle those? Because you know the other side is going to beat you over the head with it, but you can if you play your cards right. I think there's there's ways to to handle those things that are better than others. Absolutely, and I want to talk about that in a couple ways. Actually, things have fantastic question. I've actually heard trial lawyers described really in like four categories of, of levels of mastery. And the first level, the basic level is if you have a bad fact, you ignore it. Second level is to acknowledge it. The third level is to deal with it. And the fourth level of mastery is to turn it to an advantage. And that's where you want to be every time as much as possible is to take that what you think is a bad fact and say, how do I fit this into my story in a way that spins it into something good? And I think that's critical for a few reasons. One of them being, again, everything, you know, all roads lead back to storytelling. But one of the, the models that this describes in you know, a jury decision making is this kind of idea of, of congruity, right? And credibility of for a story to be believable, it has to account for all of the facts. And jury is going, the jury is going to match up what the story you've told them um, and see if you fit all the pieces into it. And if things are missing, then the story is incredible. Your narrative can't be true because it doesn't account for something. And so when you marry those things together, I mean, that tells me you've got to go in and figure out, you know, what is this, this bad fact and 
what are the, the circumstances I can tie that to? What, what is a different way of looking at this that I can, you know, not only just get in front of it and, you know, somebody like, you know, take that bullet head on. I mean, sure, you, you don't want to ignore it, but is there some way I can tie this into my side of events? Maybe it just build, builds up the sympathy for my client. Maybe it just says, you know, there was a mistake. This is a fallible person. And look, then they tried to do the right thing. I mean, there, there's just, you have to really not just see them and identify them, but wrestle with those and bake them into your trial. Yeah, I tell you, this is a perfect segue into our conclusion, which is going to be jury selection. So again, for a year and a half, no one called me for jury selection. Now everybody's calling and they want the updated voir dire. Yeah, they want the post-Trump, post-COVID, post-George Floyd. You know, all this, these are all important factors. Um, and still, still, <laughs> the big thing that, again, it's a, this is all psychology. It's an emotional problem with the attorney. I send the, I send the, the questions. He's like, I'm not asking that question. I don't want to ask that question. I go, yeah, you do. You need the damn answer to that question, but I don't, I don't want to talk about, I'm like, no, you, you have to. And I mean, related to bad facts or a bad topic in your case, I think you deal with this in jury selection. If you can, I mean, if you don't ask the tough questions about how people feel, what their belief systems are you know, towards a certain topic. And I don't, I, I, I completely disagree with the myth that, well, if a jury, if a juror says something bad in jury selection, that's going to poison the well. No, no, you've just identified your, you know, hopefully a cause challenge. Right. But Chris, talk a little bit about how, um, and I still see this like this resistance to ask these tough questions, but if you don't ask those questions, you, you can be in trouble. Right. Right. I mean, that's where you win or lose your case. Yeah. The jurors are the ones who are deciding the facts and you need to know what information is available to them. And, and this kind of goes back to our article and the availability bias and things yep. like that. And it, 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 it is essential to ask what their experiences are. And I think if you do it in a genuine, um, thoughtful way and you plan in advance how you're going to do it, um, I, I think you can you can make it like dealing with bad facts. You can make it part of your 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 story and make it part of yeah. your case in a way that doesn't 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 come off as as negative or, or problematic. Um, but it's absolutely essential. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times you know I've I've heard of or seen these 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 board dyers as they call it here in Texas. When when I was in New York, board dyer. I call it board dyer. Board dyer. I've been here. I've been here a, a good decade now, so I'll, I'll call it what it's called here. Um, but how many times, uh, you know, there, there's there's just that one question you know you need to ask, and and people will shy away from it. And and I think it's a lack of question in in some in some instances. And in some instances, it's just this uh, this thought that if I let anything seem negative about my case, then all the jury is not going to go with me, poisoning the well type of thing. And I, I think it's just so, so essential to find out about the jury you're going to impanel. I think it's all about timing too. Now, here's where I do agree with the warm up. I think jury selection is the perfect time to get your warm up in, right? It's not opening statement, but that's, but that's what you see. But I think it's, it, 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 that is the time um, that you have to interact with these folks, get that warming up. You don't have to ask that that really tough question until maybe, you know, an hour or two hours in. Um, and then you'll, you'll know, you'll know when the times 
uh, right, right to ask that. John, how are, how are you guys approaching jury selection uh, going forward? I mean, every here's the, the, a huge monumental problem I'm seeing is, uh, well, if your jury's all wearing masks, you can't see their damn face. <laughs> right. Um, you can barely hear them. Right. Um, I mean, the adjustments that need to be made here are enormous. Um, John, how's your firm? Uh, you guys like you guys talk and say, hey, here's how we're going to do things differently, because uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. We're in a very, very different world. For sure. And so as a firm, I mean, the firm represents clients all across the country, internationally, a lot of different venues. And so people do things very differently um, in, in all those different situations. So I'm not sure there's a single unified approach at this point, but yeah. certainly uh, I think there is acknowledgement that things have changed. Um, I can speak, you know, for myself and the people I work closely with, right? It is very important to work with professionals like yourself and to get all the information possible to think about, you know, jury questionnaires um, and to understand, I mean, one of the things, yeah, I mean, COVID is huge, but, you know, combined with the Trump administration of understanding how people get their information, what types of information people rely on, uh, that kind of thing tells you a lot about the type of jury you're dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. Are these analytical people that are going to be able to try and parse through all your facts? Are they gonna go with the crowd? Um, just, you know, what type of decision maker are they? And so I think, you know, focusing uh, very much on, on understanding jurors is, is critical at this point. Excellent. We're going to close it up with Chris Patton. Sa same question. What, what adjustments have you and your colleagues made? Are you talking about it? Because again, it's just, it, it's, we're really starting from scratch here when it comes from a jury selection standpoint, because it's, the whole country has been rocked and I don't care what race you are. I don't care what your sex or gender is. I don't care what your income is. Everybody's been impacted like this. And it's, I think it's been very different across the board and throw into this, which we've done several podcasts on. You have a serious mental health problem in this country, serious of undiagnosed, untreated mental health. And that's your jury pool. Things got to change going forward, right? Right. And I think a lot of it is, so we, we just did this, you know, we just did this a month ago. Um, and, and a lot of it depends on the judge's practices and procedures, which this, the trial we just did was in federal court. He had some very specific procedures for, for Vordire um, that made it a little bit easier to kind of make sure we're seeing the jurors, seeing the jurors face, although everybody was masked, you know, they would come up yeah. to the microphone and take off their masks. Oh, wow. Um, there, there, there are different things I think courts can do to, to make that a little easier, but it only emphasizes the the importance of being thoughtful in how you're asking your questions and what questions you're asking. You can't just kind of go by the old playbook. Um, yeah. You really need to start thinking through why and how and, and precisely what you're going to be asking these jurors, especially if you're going to be limited in, in how you can interact with them. So in this trial we just did, um, it wasn't one of those things where you could you know, point and say, okay, juror number, number three, what's your experience with X? Yeah. Um, the juror would come up to the microphone, you'd ask them some questions, um, and then they'd go sit back down. It was a little less kind of interactive in that, wow. in that regard. And so you have to think, think ahead and, and be sure and plan for that sort of thing. All right. Chris Patton, John Adams, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, keep in touch. Love to work with you guys, because uh, I think uh, as we continue to move forward here, 
<clears throat> into 22, um, I see a big log jam of uh, cases. <laughs> and uh, I see a lot of stuff moving and moving very quickly to the point where it's actually very uncomfortable how fast uh, it's moving. But thanks, you, thanks uh, you guys were excellent. I will put a link uh, to your paper for our audience. And I suggest everybody read that because it really goes over the science of storytelling. And uh, great having you guys on the show. Thanks, thanks so much, Bill. All right. And for our audience, uh, we're approaching 100 episodes very fast. Got a surprise for you coming up. That's going to be awesome. But thank you for participating in the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. See you next time. <laughs>